You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. So we continue our time of worship. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 10. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, leading us in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the word. This is a special weekend for Heather and me. It was uh, 24 years ago this weekend that we're one month out from getting married. We drove down I-65 south from Nashville to visit Lakeview, where I was interviewed to be an intern. She didn't know what she was getting herself into. And here we are 24 years later, just amazed at the providence of God, remembering his works of old. And so very grateful for you. Just a brief announcement. This year, on April the 7th, at 6 p.m., we are going to have a Good Friday service. So we will be gathering in here at 6 p.m. on Friday evening, April the 7th. So please pray for that service. Pray that the Lord would provide you an opportunity to invite perhaps someone who's not in church uh, to come to that service where they can hear uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to center that evening on the cross as we prepare for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So that's 6 p.m. on April the 7th. Well, if you would look with me, just for context, we're going to be in verses 30 uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 42. But for context, in verse 27 of John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Isn't that comforting? And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage that's not as well known as this previous section of John chapter 10, but it's just as inspired and it's profitable for God's people. May your preacher this morning show its profitability in the power of the Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout church history, artists have portrayed, depicted Jesus through their works of art, paintings, and, and sculptures. Last weekend, I was in Mobile at my aunt and uncle's down there watching Seth play ball. And in the room I was staying, they had a book that must have been a foot wide, The History of Art. And I dared to pick that book up. And I read sections of that book, The, the History of Art. And I learned a lot in that book. For instance, the oldest painting of Jesus that we know about was painted around 235 AD. 
and was found in Syria. Now, what's interesting about this painting is it's a young Jesus, and he has no facial hair in the painting. Some of the most famous paintings, you're aware of many of these, Leonardo da Vinci's The Baptism of Christ, 1475, it was painted. The Last Supper, 1498, all of this before, if you notice, the, the Reformation. And his Salvatore Mundi, which was painted in 1519, two years after Luther nailed his theses on the uh, door at Wittenberg. What's interesting about that particular painting, uh, Salvador Mundi, is that in 2017, it sold at auction, forget this, or get this, $450.3 million dollars. Found that interesting. 450 million was not enough. They had to add 300,000 to that painting. It's the most expensive painting that's ever been sold at auction. Some of these other paintings that are very well known Raphael's The Transfiguration, 1520, it was painted. Michelangelo's The Last Judgment, he was best known for his sculptures, but he was also a painter. 1541, El Greco's Christ Carrying the Cross. 1580, Caravaggio's Sup- Supper at Emmaus, 1601, and then Christ Crucified in 1632 by Diego Velasquez. Unlike Leonardo da Vinci, for whom he said was painting was the noblest of all arts, Michelangelo believed it was sculpting that was the noblest of all arts. As I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, in 1499, though, he painted the most famous sculpture that was ever been sculpted. It's what made him famous. The name of it, the Pieta. In the Pieta, you have the, 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 the crucified Christ who is laying in the arms of his grieving mother. I just saw the picture, and it, and it made me emotional. Um, some erroneously believe that the most realistic, accurate portrait of Jesus is found in the Shroud of Turin. Uh, there's this mysterious kind of image uh, of, of a bearded Christ who would look very familiar to us because most of the depictions we see today of Jesus look a lot like this picture, but they're all wrong. It's all false. You see, for believers, it's not the works of artists who reveal who Jesus is. It's the work of Christ himself. If we needed to know a visual image of Jesus, he would have given it to us. Now, granted, in Revelation 1, you have these physical descriptions of the glorified Christ But that is not the emphasis as we see Jesus in his earthly ministry. But the scriptures do give us his word and his works. And his words and his works are infinitely more important to us in understanding who he is than any physical appearance. Most recently in John, as we just read... He is the good shepherd who knows our names and he lays down his life for his sheep. 
And as the good shepherd, as we saw, he fulfills the great prophecy of the prophet Ezekiel that the Lord in the last days would set over them one shepherd, his servant David. In other words, someone who would come from the family line of David. Ezekiel 34, verse 23. Yet, as you study Ezekiel and other passages like Micah 5, this man would be more than a man. Yes, he would be a man, but he would be God himself. Indeed, Ezekiel 37, verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And so this figure, this person, this Messiah who would come would be the great shepherd over all God's people, over all God's sheep. He would be both God and he would be both man. Indeed, we, this makes sense of what Jesus says in verse 30 as we approach our passage here. He says, I and the Father are one. Not one person. Notice R is, is, is plural, but one in essence, equal in essence and power and glory, one in will, in insop, inseparable operation of the will in the Godhead. And there are so many implications that stem for this. Just give me a, let me offer you a few of those. First of all, because Jesus is one with the Father, we now have in Jesus a true and saving knowledge of the living God in this Christ. Later in John 14, 9, Jesus will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So to know Jesus is to know God in a saving way. A second implication of Jesus' equality with the Father Believers have assurance of salvation because we can be secure and sure that our sins have been forgiven through his death on the cross. In John 3, 16, that well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. That's the promise. Jesus says these words to a religious man named Nicodemus, would not perish but have eternal life. Third implication of his equality with the Father is that we can trust the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father, has eternal life and will not come into judgment. He, she, has crossed over from death to life. And most recently, as we read just earlier in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can trust his promises. D.L. Moody once told a story, he told this often, about this young girl who had come under, this was before antibiotics, uh, infection all over her body. She had lost her eyesight. And, and uh, this doctor, who was not known for his bedside manner, was with her parents. Uh, 
as she lay in the bed with her eyes closed, then they thought she was in a coma. And so the, the doctor with the terrible bedside manner said, your daughter has seen her best days. Well, at that moment, shockingly to them, she spoke up and she said, you are wrong, doctor. My best days are not behind me, but before me. I will see the king in his glory. Why the confidence? Because she trusted in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why does she trust in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's one with the Father. A fourth implication of this equality with God the Father, he has the authority of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has the authority of God. And that's why when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to bear in any situation, whether it's in your home or out in the workplace, the authority of Christ, the saving authority of Christ is coming to bear. And because the, Jesus is equal with the Father and has all authority, it's impossible to have a neutral view of him. Let me repeat that. Because he is one with the Father and has the authority of God himself, equal in essence and authority to the Father, it's impossible to have a neutral view of him. There's only two types of people, in fact. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him, and those who do not believe that he's the Son of God, and therefore they hate him. Recognizing there is a spectrum on both responses. Indeed, that brings us to the first point. And that brings us to verse 31. And here's the point. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, is one with the Father, many will hate him. Because he is equal with the Father, he's one with the Father, many will hate him. So notice after he says, I and the Father are one, notice verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The Jews absolutely understood what he was saying here. And this wasn't the first time if you've been with us in this study. So for instance, this started all the way back in chapter 5. The first, uh, the healing of this, of this, uh, this crippled man. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were right. Another instance of that is in John 8, 58, when Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He was identifying with the God who revealed himself to Moses. They got what he was saying because it says they picked up stones to throw at him. And certainly Leviticus 24, 16 said that blasphemy under the law, under the old covenant, required a stoning of the one who was committing blasphemy. But it certainly didn't it certainly forbid vigilante groups. And that's what you see here with these religious 
leaders. But as we read this, let us not forget the depths the Son of God underwent so that we might have eternal salvation, that we might have the forgiveness of sins. Theologians call it the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. The eternal Son of God, infinite in splendor and glory, literally, physically, humiliated himself that we might have the forgiveness of sins. He, he was born, for one thing, in, a, in that in a lowly condition. He underwent the miseries of this life, including these assassination attempts, these murder attempts. He underwent the miseries of this life. He underwent the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross. He was buried and remained under the power of death for a time. Why? So that we might have salvation. And though many unbelievers would disagree with the notion that they hate Jesus. Given the reality of who he is, as the eternal son of God, even in indifference to Jesus, just a, what would appear to be a benign unbelief and lovelessness is on the same spectrum as murder. It's on the same spectrum. Notice with me in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus doing the works of the Father has been a theme in the Gospel of John. Again, John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Inseparable operation. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on the same page when it comes to salvation. Chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And here he is asking them, Which of them... Of these good works, are you going to stone me? Now, going back to our artist, I've been thinking about these artists since I read that history of art, or sections of that history of art. Imagine Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo come to Auburn University and take an art class. We may have an art professor here uh, at Lakeview. And at the end of the semester... They make F's in their art class. And so Leonardo da Vinci, he brings his great works, his paintings. Michelangelo brings not just paintings, but he also brings his sculptures. And they ask the art professor, for which of these do you give us an F? That's what Jesus is doing here. Which of these great works that I have done that are from the Father are the reason you plan to murder me? These works should have convinced the Jews that he was the Son of God. And why is this important? Because it tells us, among other things, that evidence is never the real issue. 
I've heard people say, well, if I could have lived in the first century and if I could have seen uh, Jesus perform these works, then I would have believed as well. No, apart from saving effectual grace, you would not have believed. These works demonstrate just how hardened the sinner's heart is, even religious people's hearts. He was performing these works before them, and all it had done would harden them more. Evidence is never the issue. It's love of self and idolatry. That's the real core issue. In fact, you see it in the Old Testament. In Psalm 78, for instance, the psalmist reminds the people of God how the Lord worked these miracles in Egypt. And how he divided the sea and delivered them through the sea. And how he had made streams of water to hydrate them come out of rocks. He had split rocks. And then it says in verse 17 of Psalm 78, yet they sinned still more against him. And then he goes on and says, he rained manna. He rained meat down on them from heaven. And then Psalm 78, 32 says, in spite of all this, they still sinned. And so these works that Jesus had performed really do reveal how hardened the sinner's heart is and how much need we have for one who will actually save us from this kind of Sin condition. Well, notice in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. The irony here, don't lose the irony. They think Jesus is a man who's making himself God, when in all actuality, he is God who made himself a man. Notice in verse 34, this is a very important passage right here, especially for our day. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, And scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the son of God. This is one of the most important statements Jesus makes concerning the nature of scripture. Indeed, Jesus' defense here to them is an appeal to scripture. He always defended by the word of God. He didn't make emotional arguments. He made scriptural arguments. And in particular, he calls the law scripture. Now what's interesting here is that he quotes from a psalm. He quotes from Psalm 82.6. And in the Jewish Bible, it was made up of three parts. The law the prophets, and the writings. They call it the Tanakh, the Torah, the law, the Nevim, the uh, the prophets, and the Kethuvim, the writings. The Psalms were considered a part of the writings. 
And yet here he calls it the law. In other words, Jesus here is attributing legal authority to the entire Old Testament in calling the Psalms the law. Furthermore, he heightens the point by saying the scripture cannot be broken. How important is that for us to realize today? In other words, you can't tear anything from the scriptures. It comes as a whole. You don't get to pick your canon within the canon. There are people who do that. I like this section, but I don't like what this says. And so I'm going to chasten what this says with what this says. Scripture cannot be broken, which means it cannot be torn apart, but it also means it comes as a unified whole. It is one narrative. And that's why Jesus would affirm what we affirm, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word of God. If I can't trust what Jesus says about the Scriptures, I can't trust what Jesus says about anything else. It's so important for us to know that. Furthermore, he rests his argument on one word, God's. That is the precision in which Jesus uses the scripture demonstrates his trust in its divine inspiration. Indeed, he often appealed to the perfection of scripture. So for instance, in the the great Sermon on the Mount, which it's interesting because liberals love the Sermon on the Mount. But even with the Sermon on the Mount, they pick and choose the parts they love. And they ignore the other parts. But he says in Matthew 5, 17, that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And then in verse 18, he says, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus believed that not only every book of the Bible is inspired, Every chapter is inspired. Now, granted, chapter divisions came later. Every paragraph is inspired. Every verse is inspired. Indeed, every word is inspired. He makes his argument on a word. Here's the question. What if every church and every denomination believed what Jesus believed about Scripture? What if every Baptist church believed that? What if every Presbyterian church believed that? What if every Methodist church believed that? Dr. Moeller, on his briefing this week, March 21st briefing, he noted that recently the New York Times gave a half a page in its print edition. Now that's, a, that's premium space right there to honor the death of Frank T. Griswold III, who is the former presiding bishop over the Episcopal Church USA from 1998 to 2003. Now, those were important years for the Episcopal Church uh, USA. For instance, in 2003, under his watch, the Episcopal Church USA made international news by consecrating the first openly gay bishop in the history of bishops going back 2,000 years. His name, 
V. Gene Robinson. Um, this reversed 2,000 years of church teaching and church practice. This has led to significant division in the Episcopal Church. Not just the Episcopal Church USA, but the entire Anglican communion throughout the world. Uh, by the way, V. Jean Robinson, who was appointed bishop in 2003, divorced his wife of 15 years in 1987 and left his two children. Later, after he'd been appointed, he married a man and then divorced him. Not that you can, a man can marry a man, but the way we define things today. But with all this said, Robinson had an answer for it. Here's what V. Gene Robinson said. We worship a living God, not one locked up in the scriptures of 2,000 years ago. Well, that view of scripture allows you just to do what you want to do. Create your own God, like a, a Mr. Potato Head. Anything goes. Never mind the fact that Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is the living and active word of God. It truly reveals who God is. Not comprehensively, but truly. And it truly reveals how to know him in a saving way. Well, what did Bishop Griswold have to say about all this? The one who was presiding as the, you know, the presiding bishop over the entire church. Here's what he had to say about all that. He appealed to Jesus' words, I have many more things, things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And so, appealing to Jesus' words, he said that God's truth is always unfolding, including in areas of sexuality. Well, Jesus did say those words. I have more things to say to you. But those more things that he would say would come in progressive revelation through the pens of his appointed apostles. And the things that he would say would not conflict with what Scripture had already said about sexuality, about gender, about marriage, and about life. Why? The Scripture cannot be broken. And this is where the rubber meets the road for all churches and for all denominations. This is where the rubber meets the road. Will we say with Jesus, God's word cannot be broken? That's the question. Will we allow the word of God to be our authority on matters like sexuality and gender and marriage and life? Or... Will the ever-changing, broken, sin-stained culture be our canon? With the former, you have historic Christianity. With the latter, you have man-made religion. The scripture cannot be broken. Now, with that said, what is Jesus' argument here? We don't need to lose sight of that. Well, the Jews wanted to stone him. Because he's making himself out to be equal with the Father as the Son of God. And so he reminds them from their scriptures. 
Psalm 82, verse 6, the word God's there, Elohim, was used in reference to Israel's judges and governing authorities. In other words, they weren't God like God is. They're not equal with God. But they were, they were um, in the sense that they were acting in the place of God in their judgments. They were vice regents, if you will. And so Jesus' argument is from lesser to greater. If God called Israel's leaders gods, not in the, not in the div- divine sense, but in the sense of representing him, how much more appropriate the true and eternal Son of God speak of himself this way? Well, notice in verse 37... So we come towards the end. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Several failed attempts have been made. Why is Jesus avoiding being arrested? Didn't he come to die? Because his hour hadn't come. He's not going to die during this this feast, this this festival, that uh, the feast of dedication. He's going to come to die the feast of Passover. Because he's coming. These 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 feasts were symbolic. And typological, and he is coming as our Passover lamb who would bring about the great end time exodus. And so he knew that, and that's why he did not fear such attempts on his life because he had come on a mission, and it was a mission that would be secured until his hour would come for him to die. And that brings us to the final point, and we make this quick. We've seen... Because Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father, many will hate him. But the passage closes on a happy note. Because Jesus is one with the Father and equal with the Father, many will believe in him. Many will love him. Notice in verse 40, he went away again, crossed the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So he goes back to Bethany. He leaves Jerusalem. Jesus will come back to Jerusalem one more time. When will that time be? That time will be Palm Sunday. One week for us, but it'll be about three months for him. He is three months out from the cross. But I find this so encouraging. Notice in verse 41, many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. I love this. Why do I love this? Because if you remember back in John 3, many of these same people were jealous of Jesus. They said, John, don't you care that all these people are leaving you and following this man? They couldn't even name him. And now notice verse 42, many believed in him there. And why I find this encouraging is that all of us, if we're being faithful to the gospel, are involved in in sowing the seed and watering the seed. And we don't always see the fruit of our labor. In fact, I would say more times than not, we don't immediately see the fruit of our labor. John the Baptist had been preaching, behold the Lamb. And yet he, at this point, had died. 
And many of whom he had been preaching to were now believing in him. Some plant, some water. But God will bring the increase. Let's just be found faithful in planting and watering. We don't have to see the fruit. God has a plan for every instance that you present that gospel faithfully. But here's the important question as we close this chapter. And it's prompted by that last verse, many believed in him there. Have you responded personally to the three declarations that Jesus makes in this chapter? The first declaration is on John 10, 9. I am the door. I am the door. What does that mean? He didn't say, I'm a door. He says, I'm the door. There's only one door to the Father. There's only one way to the Father. And why is Jesus the only way? He's the only God-man. He's the only God-man. He's the only man in history who fulfilled all righteousness that covers your unrighteousness. And he's the only man in history that propitiated the wrath of God and then was raised from the grave. That's why he's the only door to the Father. Have you trusted in the door? Have you gone through the door? That's the first declaration. The second declaration, he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. In response to the cross, have you believed in the good shepherd? Have you followed him? Do you follow him? That's the second declaration. And the third declaration, as we have seen, he is the son of God. He's the one by which God created you. You were made for him. You were hardwired for him. Your hearts will be ever restless until you find your rest in him. You have been created by Jesus for Jesus. Have you given yourself to him? We want to give you an opportunity to do that as Adam and our musicians come forward. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. Three great declarations but it does you no good unless you respond in the obedience of faith. Won't you humble yourself this morning? If you've never trusted in Jesus, won't you respond to that declaration as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.